Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the Five Things Podcast. I'm your host, Kenny Gold, joined this week by a cast of usual characters, unusual, unusual characters. On my virtual right this week, we have Amanda Davis. Hello, Amanda. Good morning, Kenny. And to my virtual left, I have Beth Ross. Hello, Beth. Hi, Kenny. Hello. We're going to be talking about some fun things. Shockingly, we'll be talking about TikTok. We'll probably mention Facebook a bit. And then we'll talk about some fun things that are happening across the internet because that's what we do here on The Five Things. We tell you the latest and greatest. What's happening across the social sphere, the web, the internet, the content world. And without further ado, here's this week's five things. I will be kicking us off talking about Oracle supposedly winning the TikTok deal. Beth will tell us a little bit about Facebook launching Facebook Campus. Amanda will let us into the rumor about Spotify karaoke feature coming out. Beth will tell us about Ninja's glorious return to Twitch. And then finally, we'll talk a bit about the latest trend on Twitch, viewers' obsession with chess. So with that, let's dive right in. Oracle winning the TikTok deal. It came out over uh, from our last recording until now that Oracle was the lead uh, deal for buying the TikTok US operations. Since then, it has come out that that might not necessarily be the case. It's not just Oracle. It's partially owned by Oracle, partially owned by Walmart. There is a question of what percentage majority they own of TikTok's US operations. Then, most recently, at the time of the recording of this podcast, it has come out that on Sunday, if you do not have TikTok, you might not be able to download TikTok. Um, so that's very interesting. Uh, we also have heard that if you have TikTok on your phone currently and you are using it, you might not be able to update the app which is really important judging that iOS 14 just came out on Apple and there's a lot of bug improvements and app updates happening. We also know that this is affecting WeChat uh, as the Trump administration doubles down on trying to, quote-unquote, secure Americans uh, by protecting them from these vicious apps uh, that have plagued America's youth. Um, So with that, have we learned anything, Amanda or Beth? I just keep shaking my head um, every time we talk about this because, you know, as this saga unfolds and we talk about it each week, it's it's it gets clearer and clearer that these decisions are not being made from a place of national security, a place of, you know, social media policy or anything that it could be a good conversation to have and start. There's a lot to really unpack with how we interact with technology in and outside of the country. And there's just a lot of issues that are here. These decisions, though, are happening based on a personal vendetta against a group of of people that I, I won't lie. I do think this still all stems from the rally stunt where the TikTok teens booked up all the seats. Trump got really mad. Things really started to go downhill for him and his his campaign after that. So I I, I don't want to simplify it, but this is all these are all decisions being made out of Trump's own ego. And and I think, too, that. The behind the scenes piece that's important to remember is Oracle is a a black sheep in Silicon Valley. Like they are not a progressive, liberal, like Facebooky kind of startup culture. They they're very close with Trump. Like the the CEO and a lot of the kind of senior leadership is 
in Trump's world and they're friends with him and, you know, they they are aligned with a lot of what he's doing. So this hearing this new news today on Friday that it's going to be shut down was actually pretty surprising. Um, Oracle likely won the deal because of all of these close ties to the American government and, you know, the trust that would come with that. So knowing that Trump's kind of doubling back on on kind of his own friends and connections to to make a statement about what he will or won't stand for just goes to show this is all being decided on his own personal ego. Yeah, I also think it's I I think it's more than social media, honestly. Like I don't think that that from a governmental place keeping young people off of TikTok is like, to your point, Amanda, going to keep us safer. Um, I was watching Bloomberg this morning and there's an interesting conversation about like what this action does to, um, to actually decouple China and the US. And I think that this might be bigger. I think it's about the trade imbalance. I think it's about trying to right size currency. And it's just, I mean, I think it says a lot about the world right now that um, TikTok has so much power almost to drive those economic moves and that TikTok is actually being part of kind of the economic implications of the United States and China being connected, which is crazy and I think tells us a lot about our world and the role that social media plays within it. We are regulating a channel where kids dance. Instead of going out there and regulating channels that are actively spreading disinformation to help undermine our very democratic fabric. Like, uh, it it, it is mind-numbing. Mind-numbing, sorry, mind-blowing that this is like, that ink is being wasted on on something as frivolous as banning an app that's designed to just allow kids to dance for each other. Yeah. And it's also the context of, you know, information share between U.S. tech companies and the rest of the world is obviously should be a big part of this conversation and, and kind of policy assessment. The right thing to do for Trump is, you know, perhaps there is something to look into about how basically you, American info is, is traded or not traded between China and other countries. But that's not a decision. He he should not be making that decision. His administration should not be making that decision. I, there should be a committee. There should be a long term, you know, policy assessment. There should be input from tech companies in Silicon Valley. Like, it just scares me that if we are ready to have this conversation and we should, and I think it's been coming for a little while in, in that industry, this is not the right way to do it. And it's all being driven by someone who it has no kind of skin in the game or or, or expertise here. And that's the scary part is like, if, if we're going to have this conversation, it's going to happen this way. That is incredibly unfortunate. <laughs> so what does it mean for marketers? What should we be telling our clients? So from a data perspective, um, it's not like if TikTok went away, it wouldn't be the worst thing for marketers from getting to know their consumers because it was very hard to get your hands on TikTok data in the first place, which is kind of the irony of this whole situation. Um, But I do think it's unfortunate. It cuts out a channel that was booming that reaches an audience. These young kids dancing are like 
they have huge purchasing power. They are the audience that we want to connect with. And it, it's just a, it's a roadblock or road closure to a very valuable segment and understanding who they are, their voice, what they're interested in. It's a bummer. Yeah. I think long-term this is, this will solve itself and clients will be able, brands will be able to jump back on and, and have the opportunity to use the app. There's nothing so urgent that we need to be concerned about what this means creatively, in my opinion. And behaviorally, last thing I'll say, behaviorally, we've already talked about how this audience is doing this on other platforms. So, you know, if there is TikTok strategy and there is kind of ways that we show up there, that can easily be applied to the many other platforms that are rolling out the same features, especially with this news that we've gotten this week, too. Great for reels. Well, we've spent 10 minutes talking about this and we've talked about this every single week for the last like five weeks. So we're going to move on to some other interesting stuff. Beth, tell us a little bit about Facebook launching Facebook Campus. So I love this. Facebook is launching Facebook Campus, which is truly if you were born in the 80s and started using Facebook is just a throwback to how Facebook started. Um, The idea is you have to have an edu email address so how it was originally um and you have to enter a graduation year and then facebook is allowing campuses to be better connected um even the one part that kind of is like er, is um teachers can also be on and communicate with uh their students on facebook which the reason that gives me pause is is Facebook running the risk of becoming like Blackboard 2.0? All of this was done in an attempt to increase their relevance with a younger demographic. Um, but while the nostalgia is real, and at first I was like, yay, original Facebook, I don't know that um, it. this is setting Facebook up to be in a place where it's actually connecting with a younger generation in a meaningful way versus moving more in that workplace direction and now campus blackboard fill-in. I will say, though, at this time of COVID, I think this is a nice move and um, is a great way to use the network to keep these kids on campus who might not be as connected, connected. What do you guys think? Do you think this is, do you think this is a, a part of Facebook that should sort of be a walled garden and brand shouldn't be allowed to go in here? Like, should we, should it be kept pure? I mean... Yes. Ethically, I think that would be the right move. Does it pose a huge opportunity for brands, especially like Walmart with back to school messaging and to take advantage of tentpole moments throughout the school year? For sure. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see how brands either do interact or how Facebook reacts to letting brands be part of their campus feature. I think this also comes from another behavior that I, that Facebook is likely finding more, more relevant in, in COVID times where you have all of these message boards and neighborhood Facebook groups. Did anyone see that crazy thing on the corner? I get a little bit worried actually, Beth, too, but for a different reason is like some of those groups turn into kind of, you know, gossip, spam, like not a great place to find information, rumor mill, like it gets a little bit. And when you put college students in a place to have meaningful conversation online, 
I don't know. I, I doesn't always get to that point. So I, I'm curious to see. I don't, to your point, I'm, it was exciting and I, I think it, it is a very smart move. I'm just curious to see if they bring it much more toward, again, to the academic tool side or more of the connecting kids on campus to do what kids on campus do. And I, I don't know. I, I'm not totally seeing their vision for where this goes and, and the need that it provides. But I do think there's opportunity. So, so. Speaking of my days on campus and remembering what brought me great joy besides connecting with my friends and, and fellow students was uh, good old karaoke. No one saw that transition coming. <laughs> <laughs> Literally not at all. <laughs> so, Amanda, tell us a little bit about some of the rumors about Spotify and karaoke. All right. So it was um, announced this week, and I use the word announced in air quotes, that Spotify is developing a karaoke mode where you can basically adjust the levels of the vocals on songs that are already in the platform. Um, and we actually we found this out, as the Internet does, because a reverse engineer found like some features that were being released in the app and tested um, with a limited audience, or as I like to call them, a detective coder to break this information really before Spotify could do it. Um, so we don't actually know that much about it. There's been no, you know, response or announcement from Spotify. And I think if you're like me, this seems a little bit random. Um, karaoke is probably the most COVID unfriendly activity that you could do in a social setting with the microphones and the shared space. But there's actually some context around this that makes it make a little bit more sense. Um, so Twitch just announced a, a, a week ago from this recording that they're shutting down their karaoke app, Twitch Sings, which I don't think anyone is upset about don't know that anyone used it. But on the other side of that, there's actually a Chinese app called We Sing um, that I, over the last year, I think it generated something like 10 million karaoke recordings per day. 10 million per day is crazy for an app that is just for karaoke. Um, so you kind of have two sides of the coin. You have people doing this and you have an app that no one knew about from Twitch and wasn't utilizing at all and has now been shut down. The last piece of context that I think is really interesting is, you know, with all of this TikTok drama, what are they going to do? What's going to happen for that kind of content creation and dance music world? You, there may be a white space for that in in singing and in karaoke and for people to make their own little fun short videos of singing and dancing. I think that Spotify, it's a really smart move. Spotify is trying to get themselves into this to be utilized behavior with kids that are just, you know, making fun content all day and want to share it with their friends. So I love karaoke. I'm excited and I would absolutely use this. <laughs> Me too. It makes sense. You know, when Spotify first introduced lyrics and understanding lyrics into their app, I felt like this was a natural place for this to go in a COVID world where you can't get to the karaoke bar. I think this is actually really fun. Additionally, I think there's a massive consumer behavior of parents using Spotify with their kids um, and playing music for them. So it can help teach how to read. It can teach them their favorite lyrics. It can be a fun activity for the family to do at home. All in all, it just feels like a really, really fun uh, and awesome addition if they're able to do it. And I'll be curious to see how they monetize it um, and, and where it will create uh, opportunities for brands to integrate as well. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what platforms integrate with it as well to make video content. We are going to close out. The next two things are about Twitch. Um, and, and we kick off with Twitch's native son, Ninja, 
returning to the platform. So Beth, tell us a bit about that. Ninja, Tyler Ninja is back on Twitch. He had a deal with Mixer that has recently ended because RAP Mixer, um, which I think then there was a lot of speculation and conversation about where will Ninja go. And it's, I think, comforting to everyone that he is back on Twitch. He has a multi-year deal. It'll be interesting to see how Twitch uses this multi-year partnership with Ninja and if they integrate that into their group viewing parties and to see where it goes. What do you guys think? I will tell you, um, I was on Reddit and I was um, I followed the Fortnite subreddit community pretty heavily. And they were saying how uh, Ninja being back is such a big deal. He's so emblematic of the genre and of, you know, how he really is the trailblazer of the, the gaming and streaming community. And it was interesting to hear him say that coming back, being on Twitch, being on Fortnite, playing with friends has been restored for him. Um, so it, it, it's kind of, I, I think when the influencers are, are comfortable and happy to be back where they start, you know, it, it's a place of comfort and they'll create better content because of it. And even in the couple of days he's been on, like you can tell a little bit that not to say he has more confidence, but you can tell that Twitch is supporting him in a very real and tangible way. He's been doing a lot of, you know, guest appearances. He's been very vocal about like a lot of issues within the gaming community, even in the last you know week or two. So it, it's clear that it's kind of unlocked the ability for him to be himself, which I think when you look at how influencers and platforms work, we see that with TikTok, for instance, that is the future of how they need to be tapping into these people because no one's going to Twitch if you don't have the influencers and the streamers there to to watch. That's absolutely right. I think that's spot on. And and he's the draw. He's the Leonardo DiCaprio. He is the uh, he is the uh, Viola Davis. He is the uh, give me big 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 people. Um, he is the Ronda Rousey of Twitch. Um, <laughs> so you know I, I I'm very excited excited to see this and I'm very excited to see what it does for Twitch as it continues to grow. But that leads us to our fifth thing, which I am really, really excited about, which is Twitch has seen a massive uptick and obsession with people watching chess. So during the coronavirus pandemic, with all the stay at home orders, everybody's sitting at home bored, they're learning, but they're also watching live streams of chess from March through August. 41 million hours of chess was watched on Twitch. Okay. 41 million plus hours of chess was watched on Twitch. You know, we're seeing famous Twitch streamers with over two to three million followers playing chess day in and day out. They're collecting an audience of people where they are talking about the game, showing people how much fun. Uh, can be had by watching this classic game. And it's an interesting intersection because it's not your traditional streaming game like you would see on Twitch. So we have seen the rise of chatting-only rooms. We have seen the introduction of group viewing parties. We have seen the rise of gaming and non-gaming streamers. So now we are starting to see the diversification of what is being streamed. And that in, in and of itself is really particularly interesting. Amanda, Beth... What do we think? I was going to say, you took the words out of my mouth, Kenny. I think, you know, Twitch is understanding how they interact with audiences beyond the core gaming, you know, dynamic. And when you take a game like chess, 
I don't know how to play, but I know it's a very classic game of strategy that is essentially timeless. So it's like when you can have something that, you know, anyone can engage and partake and feel interested in and, and, and follow as a, as a sport, you're starting to realize there's, there's much more use as they start to do things, concerts and other, you know, other non-core gaming uses of the platform. It's, it's just another step in that. And it's, it's, almost used as like ASMR. It's very, I'm sure, relaxing, but engaging, keeps you, you know, interested in what's going on and 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 very calm. So I think, yeah, this is Twitch's, you know, great time to push beyond the core, you know, single shooter games, you know, everything else that's streaming on the platform now. And I think this is the beginning of the year of, of post-gaming streaming. And the source of this thing is the New York Times. Like Twitch is full on mainstream. This isn't on Kotaku. This isn't on Engadget. This isn't on TechCrunch or Fast Company. This is in the New York Times. Uh, so we are, we have anybody who doesn't think that, that gaming and streaming and gaming as a marketing channel isn't here to stay, like get on board. It's time already. Yeah, I totally agree. I also think it's just really interesting to think about what's driving people to watch chess and. As you mentioned, Amanda, the strategy is pretty timeless. Like, are people watching to learn how to think three steps ahead? And I like to think it says something about we're all maybe just slowing down a little bit, using technology to sit and slow and watch versus move so fast. Oh, don't even. Penny, let me be myself. (laughs) Fine. Well, everyone, first and foremost are things have been found and curated through sources like The Verge, TechCrunch, NME, and The New York Times. So love having a diverse set of sources. This has been fun. I want to let you all know that you can give us feedback by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. I'd like to thank Amanda and Beth, as always, for joining me on this fantastic voyage through the latest in social and digital. Hopefully by the next time we talk, there's some resolution about TikTok. Watch some chess. Take a deep breath. Remember to always stay safe, stay smart, stay social. Thanks for listening. The Five Things are written and researched by Andrew Patti and Grace McDougall. Produced by Joey Scarillo, Danielle Hunt, and John Dillon. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.